Coming to you live at STD Engage 2019 in Alexandria, Virginia, welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is an intentionally inclusive hub of sex positive resources aimed to equip people who are affected by STIs with the tools they need in order to navigate stigma. My guest today is Amanda Dennison. Is that how you say your name? Yes, it is. She, her pronouns? Yes. Awesome. Thanks for asking. Um, I don't know where to start. So I told you I wasn't going to read your right. uh, article, but I read it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to sit here and play stupid. So you are positive for genital HSV2, is that correct? That's right. And how long ago were you diagnosed? Oh, gosh, it was July 2015. Oh, when I was diagnosed. So. All right. And was this the first time you ever opened up about it was when that article came out? How long ago was that? Uh, that was in April of this year. Okay. So April and 2019. Yeah. That was the first time that I had publicly come out. Not even that many people in my personal life knew. Yeah. So. What gave you the courage to do so? You know, I work for NCSD. We are a sex positive organization. Uh, we talk a lot about engaging community members and what we're doing. Mm. But I felt like, how are we going to engage them if no one around here is telling their own stories? And it felt a little hypocritical to say, oh, we want people to tell their stories, but no one in our organization was. Um, so one day I had a conversation with my boss, and I just said, you know, we want to do this. I'd be more than willing to share my story. And, of course, he jumped on that and said, yes, absolutely. Um, STD Awareness Month was coming up the following month. It seemed like the perfect time to kind of launch this initiative called STD Voices and share my story to get it started. Awesome. Was there any fear behind it at first? I know you mentioned bringing it to your boss. Were you worried about any sort of stigma you'd face from your employer? Yeah, even though, I mean, right, we're the National Coalition of STD Directors. We work with STDs all the time. Uh, we represent people who work in the STD prevention field. I still was nervous about any stigma or judgment or shame I would get from my coworkers. That didn't happen though, luckily. They're very, you know, they're all very, very supportive. I feel like being in the sex positive field, you're met with a lot more um, receptive people who Absolutely. are understanding and I think just are generally aware of the statistics of how common SCIs mm -hmm. are. So when you tell them, hey, I have an SCI, they probably wouldn't even bat an eye. Was that kind of what you were met with by peers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a lot of thanks for sharing. Thanks for stepping up and being the first to share your story. Um, a lot of appreciation and just general support from them. Yeah, I noticed that it's really easy for people to share their STI stories when they can say, I had chlamydia, I had syphilis, mm -hmm. I had gonorrhea, but no one's, not many, are open to saying, I have an STI. Right. Is that something that you noticed as well? Yeah, it's really easy to say you, you know, got some antibiotics and you're good to go, whereas, you know, you're living with an STI, right? So... There's the constant disclosure and conversations that take place around it. Whereas if you had something before, you don't, it's not something you have to think about or share. Um, I appreciate when people share their stories. That's still empowering to other, you know, community voices. But yeah, it's a different uh, energy around those conversations. Yeah, for sure. Now, being in the public health space and mm -hmm. having received a positive diagnosis. Were you already in the public health space? Yes, I had been in STD and HIV prevention for f almost five years before I was diagnosed. Oh, so you were in here for five years and when it happened, were you just kind of like, what the F? Oh yeah. I don't even know if there was a lot of personal shame associated with my diagnosis. I felt like a professional failure. Like how was I supposed to do my job of preventing STDs and HIV if I myself got one. I had no, that was the biggest, I think, challenge for me coming to um, the getting to a place of accepting my diagnosis. For a long time I told, and I didn't tell anyone at my previous job, it wasn't until I got here, you know, almost four years later that I said something uh, to coworkers. Uh, so that, that was a big shock. Even if, you know, I felt like I did things right and, you know, I followed advice that I had given patients at the clinic I had worked at and 
and whatnot, I still ended up with an STD and it was just kind of mind boggling. Yeah. And so when you received your diagnosis, what was the interaction like with the person that, with the care provider? Oh, sure. So I had never seen this provider before. Um, my regular provider, I think, was out on maternity leave. So, uh, you know, she walks in and she's got on like green scrubs and clogs and she's really pleasant, um, but also very like quick and dismissive uh, in her conversation with me. So she's like, you've got herpes. All right, I got to go. Yeah, it was, you know, it was strange. There wasn't a lot of time for me to like process and come up with questions. It was, yeah, this looks like an outbreak. Let me swab it. That hurt like hell. Um, and then, okay, well, it's July 4th weekend coming up, so you're gonna have to wait like a week for your results. In the meantime, here's some prescriptions. On your way out, make your appointment, bye. Yeah. Um, and I knew, I mean, I had been in the field long enough to know what was happening. Um, but I waited, I didn't tell anybody until I got my results. When I came back from my results, uh, it was just, you know, yeah, like we thought, it's herpes, it came back HSV2, um, you know, keep taking your medication, and if you want, uh, we can get you on, you know, the daily dose of acyclovir going forward. And that was kind of it. Still like, you know, she didn't take a sexual history on me, which, you know, being in this field, what? What do you mean? I, I'm being diagnosed with an STD and you're not taking a sexual history. Um, I had to ask for other STD tests. I didn't think I was at risk for other things, but I'm like, I'm being diagnosed with one. That's interesting. I should be tested for all of them. Yeah. Um, no conversation about how to disclose to current partners or past partners or even how far back I should go in telling partners. Um, I wasn't out to my doctor as a queer woman at the time, so there was no discussion about, you know, yeah. how to tell different partners. So it was just all very strange. And I, I walked out to my car and I was like, what do, what do I do now? <laughs> I was met with a different experience. So when I was diagnosed, I was also tested for the other STIs. Mm -hmm. I was tested for the curable ones in HIV. And I was given medication, I believe, that would have treated chlamydia, one of the curable ones. I was just given the treatment for that mm -hmm. and my diet, um, my medication for the herpes. So when I left out of there, you know, I had all of this taken care of. So it's, it's really shocking to me that it's not common practice to be tested for other STIs right. when you're diagnosed with an STI. And it really does make me question how we as people who have herpes view herpes how those who believe they aren't affected by or are negative for herpes, and then how the medical community views herpes. Mm -hmm. So like even being here at STD Engage, I noticed that a lot of the conversation is HIV, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis focused, right. and trick. Our trick's been up there, um, but not herpes. And it's come up in some of the small meetings, but it's only been called HSV2, mm -hmm. as if HSV1 can't be transmitted genitally. Yeah. I guess what my question is to you now is like, do you have any insight as to why that is? Yes. <laughs> and that all comes from, I think, what's funded on a national level, right? So uh, the nationally reportable diseases, things that are reported from labs to state and local health departments, which then gets reported to CDC, are gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. Herpes isn't reported. Not even trick. Trick's not reported. Um, Shankroyd is, but there's like. Well, we gotta I talk about that one later. I don't even know how many <laughs> cases of that there are. Probably less than a handful every year. Um, and so there's no discussion around herpes because health departments aren't working on herpes, right? Like that's not a conversation. Now, when I worked at a clinic, I had conversations about it all the time, right? I had people coming in uh, to get tested for HIV because they were diagnosed with herpes, and like me, they didn't get offered other tests, so they walked into my clinic to get those tests. Um, so I had conversations there, and even when I was at the health department, the state health department, I got calls all the time about, 
concern around somebody's out there spreading herpes or I know so-and-so has herpes. Um, and there was a lot of conversation around stigma and shame and how uh, to disclose to partners. Um, and that was even before I was diagnosed myself. <laughs> but yeah, as a, you know, a health department provider or you know, managing an STD prevention program, it's not something that's reported. So, and it's not something that's well-funded. Like research isn't uh, funded a lot around herpes, although they, work, they are working on a vaccine for it. Um, I guess it's not as sexy, as some would say, yeah. as the others. And I would think that just collecting the experiences of people who talk to me, it's been, to me, more of a matter of there's an absence of a sense of urgency mm -hmm. as a result of the stigma because right. people have the ability to step up and say, hey, I'm affected by this STI. I would like to protect my partners better. Where's the vaccine? There's no demanding it, but in order to do that, you have to put yourself out there. Right. You know, there are all kinds of petitions and campaigns that are going on right now to advocate for this, mm -hmm. but uh, the numbers of people who have herpes versus the number of people who are suffering from herpes, they don't match up. And of right. course, HIV being something that can lead to uh, fatalities, we're looking at way more of a sense of urgency for there. For uh, syphilis, it can lead to infertility. And then we have all of these additional long-term effects of the curable STI. So I understand the urgency there and getting people to really rally behind more herpes support mm -hmm. really puts us in position of compromising our anonymity, our mm -hmm. safety, I guess. So, I mean, are you aware of any of these kinds of efforts that are going on? Mass advocacy efforts? No. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I, I say this, not to, I don't want to put you on the spot, but this is just something to make the listener think about. Um, if you're someone who is, in fact, living with uh, herpes, I say herpes, including HSV-1 orally and genitally, HSV-2 orally and genitally, that's what I'm talking about. So these are the ones that aren't getting any kind of attention and there are so few people who are suffering from chronic outbreaks. More of us were affected by the social stigma, if nothing else. And that same thing that we have the power to negate, neutralize, whichever is the best word, is the same thing that's keeping us from neutralizing it. So it's just this cycle of this is what I need to do in order to alleviate myself from the stigma and this is what this is the reason that I can't do that mm -hmm. very thing so I mean I get it but I, I just want to make sure that people are aware you know there are efforts out there and there's multiple ways that people are able to get involved my next question for you what did you have anything that you want to add to that no I think that's great I think a lot of it has to do with education people don't People feel alone when they're diagnosed, but they don't realize how many people are affected by it. And when you tell them, you know, the CDC estimates that one in five people are living with genital herpes, and that you think, you know, to the number of partners you may have, you're like, oh my, <laughs> you know, 20% of them potentially have it. And then as someone who knows their status, like you are then empowered to kind of interrupt that transmission and to like keep yourself safe. And uh, there's not a lot of that conversation until people realize like just how, how many people are actually affected by it. Well, someone once said with great power comes great responsibility. Yes. And in this instance, like with great empowerment, comes great mm -hmm. unwanted responsibility <laughs> like we don't want to have these conversations and you can share feel free to share here but it wasn't until I received my herpes diagnosis that I began to have to have these conversations mm -hmm. um, before for me it was always like are you on birth control all right let's move forward and I know condom or no condom and I always had this assumption that STIs had a smell or and some kind of an odor or physical visible mm -hmm. symptoms or a person would be in such pain that they wouldn't want to have sex. Right. So these were kind of my three assumptions as a result of the information that I was given. 
uh, and the sex ed programs, if you can even call them that. In my health class, right. I was associated with PE mm-hmm. <laughs> more than anything. So uh, just with that additional empowerment, it may seem like a burden for a lot of people. When you know, right, there's an expectation that you tell everybody. Um, and we're not, you know, I don't want to use the word training, but we're not preparing people to have these conversations, even, you know, one-on-one with partners, let alone telling the world about it. You know, we're not, and that's unfortunate. I think that there should be more of an emphasis, not necessarily on us having to disclose our status, but more so on the receptivity of the conversation in general. So if people are empowered to have the conversation, yes, I mean, nobody wants an STI. No one's out here online, there's a kink, and that's, or kink fetish, one of the two. Uh, Bug chasing, have you heard of that? Oh, yeah. All right, so that's probably the only exception to this conversation. But for the most part, people aren't asking for an STI. It's just something that happens, Mm -hmm. and we have this expectation centered around I don't know what that it cannot happen to us it takes one time I know people who've had hundreds of partners who've never gotten an STI and I know people who've had one partner and gotten an STI Mm -hmm. so we have to get to a place where we're aware that this can happen and we need to be presented with the resources that we need in order to take care of ourselves. Every STI at this point in time is either curable, treatable, or manageable. And that's that. We treat them like now all of a sudden, you know, our identities are so attached to what we believe to be true about STIs in general. Mm -hmm. So if we can just accept them as a health status or a change in health status so that whoever's treating us is able to treat us, then I think that it helps us to navigate the stigma a little bit better as well. Right. Uh, On Tuesday evening, we had a young person speak at the opening. Was this Addison? Addison. Addison, yeah. Amazing. They are amazing. Um, But they said, you know, a lot of people... Um, think STDs are bad because sex is bad and that having an STD is like a mark on your character when all it is is a medical diagnosis. In the same way that we would treat any other medical diagnosis, um, whether that's managing it or curing it, that needs to be the same conversation here. Same exact thing. And society just has this cringe about the word sex yes and it's so it's so interesting everybody wants to do it but so few are comfortable with talking about it mm-hmm. and why aren't we at a place where we can comfortably have these conversations of what everyone's doing um, between medical professional to patient parent to child you know youth to educator these these all of these barriers are just uh compounding the things that make us feel the way we do mm-hmm. once we receive a positive diagnosis. So, uh, question about when you were diagnosed, did you feel like your identity was challenged or shifted being a healthcare professional and now having an STI? Was there any sort of inner conflict at all? Sure. Like I said, I, I felt like a professional failure. Like I couldn't do my job anymore. Like now I, I harbored some big secret um, that I couldn't share with anybody. Uh, it completely changed the way that I lived kind of my romantic or sexual life, which was vastly different than pre-diagnosis. So yeah, there was a, there was a shift until I kind of accepted it. And as I said in in my opening statements, felt empowered by it. And that took months to get to a place where it was like, okay, well, I'm the one with the virus. I'm the one who has the knowledge. I'm not, you know, the ignorant person asking me if their legs touching mine under a dinner table would give them herpes. And I'm not joking about that. I believe you. Was there any stigma that may have taken place, like, in your workplace from other medical professionals, maybe before your diagnosis, and then you may have noticed it after? Because I find that there are people who don't necessarily pay attention to it until they're affected by it, and then you just notice it everywhere. 
Sure, I don't know if I, well, I can't say I didn't notice it. Um, but it, nothing specific to herpes, I don't believe, but more so we've worked in the STD field. We, you know, I worked with a DIS or a disease intervention specialist who were out uh, interviewing newly diagnosed syphilis and HIV patients and they talk about their cases. We have meetings where we do case reviews and you would always kind of hear a little bit of stigma or shame among those um, conversations. And I think I noticed it more and more after being like on the other side. Yeah. Sure, I wasn't diagnosed with syphilis. I didn't have to interact with the DIS as someone diagnosed with herpes. But there's almost a bit of like camaraderie there. Like if you're talking about this person, what would you say about me? Yes. If you knew. Yeah, I'm curious to know how I would have handled that. And I challenge anyone listening to ask themselves, you know, if you've noticed any uptick in stigmatizing language being used around you, um, I mean, obviously, more people who find themselves here are positive for HSV. How do you deal with that? My personal advice would just be to ask yourself why you feel the way you feel begin to bring awareness into that and allow yourself to, of course, feel the feeling, but you've got to also challenge your beliefs about yourself with experiences moving forward. Do you have any suggestions on your end on how a person can deal with the internalized stigma? I think even if you find one person that you can talk to, whether it's your best friend or your partner at the time, if you find one person who is supportive, I think you learn that you find other people who are supportive. And all it takes is kind of one positive experience um, of telling somebody. And I, you know, whenever I get messages from, from folks being like, how do I tell people? How do you disclose? My experience was when I started disclosing was far more positive than negative. I had one, negative experience with the guy with the dinner table question. Um, but everybody else was very accepting. You should have told him you already had it. <laughs> <laughs> Chances are. Um, but yeah, I think there's, if, if you can get to the point of just telling one person and starting to talk through those feelings, I mean, even if that one person is a counselor, is a therapist, and you start working through some of that, it is so helpful. I think it it is very difficult to kind of sit in silence with all those thoughts and all those feelings and not talking about them with somebody. And like I said, it, you know, therapist, family member, friend, counselor, you know, a, a trusted coworker or something. Um, but as, I think as soon as you put a voice to what is happening, it starts, you know, starts unraveling a bit. Mm -hmm. And not talking about it, that's what the virus wants. The virus wants to remain a secret because that's where it thrives in that place of shame. You know, the more we stress ourselves out and trying to hide this and keep it under wraps and hidden and maybe not disclose, the more this virus is able to thrive because think about it stress is a trigger for many of us I want to say if not all of us so being under the stress of going into a new sexual relationship with someone and having not disclosed this is often increasing our stress levels to where the virus is able to express itself so it's important for us to establish a better relationship with our bodies and be able to get to a place where we can communicate our status to our partners and I'm aware of the very specific communities of people who are at risk of physical violence for disclosing so I want to make sure again to just hold space here for them as well but if you are someone who has the privilege then it's your place to disclose your status to your sexual partners let's talk about sex Let's do it. I'm often met by people who don't directly ask mm -hmm. how they say it is. No one's going to love me. How am I going to have a family? And after talking to them for a while, it really boils down to who's going to want to have sex with me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's 
kind of the number one concern when it comes to this. Yeah, and so as far as dating and disclosure goes, uh, you did mention that you identify as queer, yes. are queer. How do I say this? Because I'm, I'm still learning language. So are you queer or do you identify as queer? So I, that's a good question, and I don't know the answer to it. I, I identify as queer. I am queer. It's just, yeah. Okay. Now, for queer people, I'm aware that there are discrepancies or discrimination from the medical community mm -hmm. oftentimes. Uh, there's discrimination. Have you faced any of that at all? Uh, discrimination in, in the way that, you know, the assumptions that are made. So uh, the assumptions that as um, a woman I'm only sleeping with men or only sleeping with other heterosexual men who, you know, you're not asking me about who my partners are also sleeping with. And also only assuming that I am in a monogamous relationship is another part of it. And not asking about how many partners, the gender identities of my partners, what types of sex I'm engaging in. So that's, I have not come out to the vast majority of my providers. Yeah. Was it easier for you to step into the public space as a queer person than it was for you to say I have herpes? You know, it's funny you bring that up because the day I came out to my boss as having herpes was the same day I came out to him as being queer. Um, you know, we had had the conversation about herpes and then I went to my email. I left his office, was checking my email and found out that I was going to be honored as one of the 40 under 40 queer women of DC. And I was like, oh, this would be really great to kind of, you know, to share with the team. And so I forwarded it to him and I just said, well, since I'm coming out to you about everything else, I might as well come out to you about this too. Um, and so I kind of just came out as all at one time to, yeah. to my coworkers. Uh, but previously, you know, in my personal life, yeah, it was a lot easier. Not that it was easy. Yeah. But it felt easier to come out as queer um, especially to you know family members than it did to have an open conversation around having an STD. Now how crazy is that because I think it demonstrates how far we've come as a society mm -hmm. really. I think about people I've known who have eventually come out so to speak and there's got to be a better way of saying that right. <laughs> other than coming out but the people I know who've come out about their sexual orientation, their sexual preferences, when they stepped into that space, there was so much fear around mm -hmm. it. There was so much fear of judgment, of abandonment from the communities that you belong to. And now we're at a place where people are able to come out and be celebrated mm -hmm. more so than shamed. Right. I am very, very hopeful for us getting to that same place as far as sex positivity and being able to discuss STI status. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have to talk about coming out. We should be right. talking about being where we are, being who we are. And there shouldn't be any question about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we have come a long way in terms of accepting different sexual identities, gender identities, all of that. But in terms of talking about sexual practices, totally different. Oh yeah. Not that it should be, right? Like it's it's all a part of kind of someone's identity and how we live our lives, right? But talking about an STD means you're engaging in the sexual acts that got you to a place of having an STD, right? So that's where we don't go. Like the conversation ends. And that's unfortunate because that's really where the conversation needs to stay. Right. <laughs> we need to continue to talk about this. So we're going to have sex. We're going to continue to do so. So how can we engage in conversations that allow for us to set a foundation where that's standard? It should be a standard for us to discuss STIs. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Evelyn Dacker. She is uh, the executive director of Sex Positive Portland, and I had her on the podcast, episode 99. She did a TED Talk called STARS, and 
it started with, uh, it was an acronym for sexual or STD status, turn-ons, avoids, relationship intention, and then the final S was for safety. And I think that that really sets a solid foundation for how we can talk about sex in a very conscious way. Because not only are we talking about our STI status, we're talking about um, our kinks, what mm -hmm. turns us on, things that can be done consensually. Like now we're getting into consent. Right. So we're talking about these are things I like, what are things you like, these mm -hmm. are things I don't like, what are the things that you don't like. And their relationship intention is just going to be casual, is this going to be monogamous, are we working towards marriage, are we just going to not ever see each other again? And then we get to the other S, which is safety, and mm -hmm. that just branches out into just letting a friend know that you're going to be staying with so-and-so so, -and -so, so right. that they know where you are letting the person know that hey i'm turning my gps on i've already told 50 people like i made a facebook status saying where i'm going to be at so if you try anything you're effed <laughs> <laughs> so um, i find that to be a very good foundation for a good core of topics and us beginning to discuss sex and mm -hmm. sexual health and having that kind of a conversation so do you have anything that you feel is like something that needs to be added there no i think that sums it up you know i identified as polyamorous for a really long time and there was a podcast that i listened to that you know was made up of a bunch of, of poly folks but it was like what's your elevator speech when you oh. when you get into a relationship like what are things that you want your partner to know or a potential part partner to know and how to convey that in a way that is, you know, it hits on consent, it hits on what you like, what your limits are, um, what are hard stops, um, you know, having a conversation around STIs, uh, condoms or other forms of, you know, protection or prevention, and kind of like how to have that conversation. And I think that stars, uh, you know, kind of topic areas that you just laid out is a kind of a perfect summation of know what we wanted to have in that elevator speech shameless so. plug i mean we've got all kinds of resources similar to this on the something positive for positive people podcast yeah. so all of the perspectives that we're bringing on here are really useful to people who are navigating a positive sti diagnosis and also for people who are potentially dating someone who may have an sti so these are all very useful tools in order to uh, help you to navigate that now as far as disclosing goes do you have a particular way that you do it or is it on a case-by-case -case basis um, especially being someone who's queer who doesn't just have sex with someone who's heterosexual or who's um, only homosexual. Is that a bad word now? Is homosexual a bad yes. word? All right. So someone who engages in sex with the same gender. Yes. All right. Yeah, we, t we tend to say uh, gay, bisexual, or other men who have sex with men. Okay. MSM. I, I just saw that being at this conference. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah, in the beginning, it was kind of case by case. I was so timid when telling people. I would kind of just awkwardly shove it into whatever conversation I could before a first date. When I realized that the responses weren't going to be super negative, and luckily I was never put in a position where I felt like my physical safety was going to be at risk, uh, which you know I, I realized not everybody is in that same situation. It was like, okay, now let's have this conversation in person. So instead of telling you over text message, I'm going to tell you in person because I really want to see the way that you react. Um, and I think it's more than just like seeing them. It's like you pick up on what's happening in them. Right. Like There's that all that nonverbal yeah. communication that takes place, uh, which was really important for me to see. But then I kind of got tired of having the conversation. Put it on your dating profile. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I did. Um, you know, before I worked for NCSD, I came to their conference in 2017, we were here in Alexandria, and uh, there are these things called giant microbes, and they're little stuffed animals of different uh, infections, STDs being some of them, and I got one that was herpes. So I kind of took a picture of it, like, you know, tongue-in-cheek sort of thing, took a picture, pointing to it, and I even put it as my Facebook profile picture, and I was like, I came to S NCSD annual meeting, and all I got was herpes. 
Now, most people didn't realize that I already had herpes, like for real had herpes. I can only imagine the kind of jokes that went around for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's before I felt comfortable telling friends. I put it on my Facebook as, you know, a kind yeah. of... Do you find that since coming out publicly mm-hmm. that it's made it easier to disclose moving forward, or is it still uncomfortable for you at all? I don't think so. I mean, if I can get up in a room and 600 people, even if I don't plan on sleeping with any of those 600 people, I feel comfortable just saying, you know, hi, my name's Amanda and I have herpes. It's just, you know, it's like saying, hi, I'm Amanda and I have hazel eyes and brown hair and I'm 5'6". It's just, it's just another, like, part of me, but it's not, you know, it doesn't define me. You Um, mentioned... um, how just telling someone really helped you with your healing process. Is mm-hmm. that like the major contributor to you being able to deal with the challenge of your identity and what you believed about yourself, having done everything right to not get an STD and then all of a sudden make it to the other side of that point, having an STD. Do you feel like there were other things that might've helped you in the healing process? I'm certainly talking to people, right? You get the positive reinforcement of everything else that kind of counteracts whatever stigma. Um, and I was going to therapy at the time, so it is okay. something that I talked to, you know, my therapist about. Did you talk about to your therapist about it right away? Yes, okay. I did. I mean, it was... I had started seeing my therapist when I was in a committed relationship, um, and that relationship had ended. I was then diagnosed with herpes so it kind of just felt natural to like as we were talking about my relationship status shift um and you know coming into my own as a queer person that then also talking talk about herpes um so I did talk about it with her and it it helped tremendously I think other things that helped even without disclosing to people is that when I heard comments being made, being able to be like, you know, the sex positive way to say this or the way to have this conversation without being stigmatizing, even if I wasn't telling them that I I had herpes, it was a way to kind of shift the entire conversation around STDs in general. Um, That certainly helped. And then just you know, getting to a point of getting back into the dating game and feeling desirable again and kind of rebuilding your confidence in that arena mm-hmm. and being educated as well. I worked in the STD field, but as we mentioned earlier, I didn't deal a whole lot with herpes other than, you know, some conversations around it in a clinic, but educating myself around the virus. You know, when I when I had my first outbreak, I had a lot of the... Uh, rare kind of medical things that also happen. So it wasn't just an outbreak. It was like a 10 other things that happened. What was some and, of those things? You mean like fever, chills? Uh, not necessarily fever, chills. It all started because I thought I had a UTI. It wasn't a UTI. And then because they put me on antibiotics for a UTI, I got a yeast infection on top of my first outbreak. I ended up having pelvic inflammatory disease, a uterine infection, uh, like severely swollen lymph nodes in the groin area and the nerve pain shooting down from my butt cheeks to the tips of my toes. Like I was laid up in bed for like two weeks. Is this as a result of a misdiagnosis initially? No, I just, for whatever reason, I have friends who have herpes who just thought it was an ingrown hair. And when like a second or third one popped up. Your friends are so awesome. I they were know. trying to protect you. Right? <laughs> like they were just like, yeah, this this was my experience. And I was like, I was miserable for two to three weeks before I like felt somewhat normal again. And then after my outbreak cleared up, there's something that can happen with your urethra where you feel like you have to go to the bathroom, but you can't. And that was also miserable. But it wasn't a UTI, it's, you know, a consequence of having this, you know, kind of drastic outbreak. And I don't remember how I got on this topic. Oh, it's okay, we're just just talking, it doesn't even matter. Um, But yeah, I mean, my first experience was horrible. Yeah. And I, you know, I certainly don't wish that experience on anybody. We were going to get to it at some point. Yeah. (laughs) Safety. Uh Um, As far as practicing safe sex with someone who has sex with all genders, all genders, right? Yep. Okay. Um, What are some of the best practices? So this is a conversation that I have with 
all of my partners. I think first and foremost, right, like I tell them. And I tell them that for me, as someone who experiences recurrent outbreaks if I'm not on medication, I make sure to take my medication twice a day, every day. And then with new partners, sure, we use condoms or barrier protection. I know if I'm going to have an outbreak a day or two before a sore comes up, so I can say, okay, not having sex between right now and when it clears. Do you eliminate all sex or just certain types of sex or do you avoid the area? For me, just going through it like a personal thing, I just don't feel comfortable really engaging in sexual activity at that point. Um, and this is when you know it's coming along. Yes. What are some of the signs that you have? Um, it's the same thing that happened in between feeling like I had a UTI and my first sore coming up was feeling like uh, a chafing sensation. And the first time it happened, I thought it was because I was wearing new uh, exercise pants at my hip hop fitness class. And little did I know that like two days later, I'd be in the throes of a full blown, okay. full blown outbreak. So I still get that sensation before having a recurrent outbreak at this point. So when I, you know, I feel that coming on, I kind of just eliminate sex. And your partners are responsive to this. It's like they know what's yeah. happening. And yeah, they, there's no pressure. They're supportive. There's, yeah, no pressure, no resentment or anything like that. And then, sure, when I get to a point with a partner where maybe I've been with them a while or we've had the conversation and we decide to eliminate barrier protection, then it's, okay, at that point, what other methods are available? And I just... I make sure I'm on my medication and I make sure that I don't have sex during an outbreak and we go from there. Okay, so we're just talking about different ways to minimize the risk of transmission to other partners. Mm -hmm. Okay, now it sounds like to me there's a lot of openness, open communication and transparency between you and your partners. Mm -hmm. I think that that speaks volumes to being able to and being safe in disclosing your status. So do you have like a filtering mechanism for how, when, and who you disclose to? Are there certain characteristics that you look for in partners or what? I mean, so I got old enough to put it on my dating profile. Um, So not just on my Facebook page as, oh, hey, I have this herpes stuffed animal. But it was, I have herpes. If you aren't comfortable with that, don't bother messaging me. Um, So that was kind of the first thing, um, was, okay, well, if you've messaged me, I'm going to assume that you're okay with it because it's on my profile. If I felt uncomfortable in the conversation in any sort of way, and it didn't even have to be about sex, right? Like if I sent some sort of stigma around something else or judgment around something else you know sometimes you just get a vibe for somebody or they say things that make you uncomfortable even if it doesn't have to do with sex or stds then that's not someone that i'm gonna pursue and tell them that i have herpes so there's like a level of Mm open-mindedness okay and that's one of the sort of filters for a partner for you absolutely i mean it's Someone who identifies as queer, who has, you know, been in the poly space, who has herpes, who works in the, oh, yeah. the sexual health field. Like, I feel like there's a lot of things there that could potentially be shamed or judged. Um, so it's kind of like you just, you know, all right, there's, I work in public health. Uh-huh. Specifically with sex, yeah, and you kind of just like push it, push it, right? push it, and you just like it's kind of like a checklist yeah. of you know, there's all of these all things of that are a part of my identity, yes. and if you're not okay with one of them, then we're not going to be okay, and that's not a partner that I want to pursue. I heard last night at one of the presentations here at CD Engage, one of the presenters, and I forget the exact name of it, but it was on talking to teens about sex, Mm -hmm. sexual health, and they mentioned, someone in the audience mentioned, they were like, well, you can take, make a list of 10 things that you, that make you say yes to Mm -hmm. a partner, and the partner has to check off 10 things, and then you're a yes. So this conversation really revolved around consent as well. Absolutely. So I am a hell yes 
if all 10 of these check marks are checked off. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes we look for red flags, we look for negatives, we look for things to make us say no, rather than looking for the things that make us say hell yes. And I think that that's a very useful exercise and it made me think about that when you said um, something you had just said, I can't remember what it was. My checklist. Yeah, the checklist. Like having a checklist for your green light rather than a checklist for, all right, three strikes, you're out. Why not 10 check marks, you're in. (laughs) Right, and they don't all have to be sex related, right? Like, what are things that make you feel good when you're with another person? What are not only, you know, these are all my my kinks and my fetishes and I want people to be in, in the same, interested in the same things, but how do you want to feel when you're with someone, right? And if they make you feel that way or they're interested in the same things, then yeah, that, that sets a positive tone for things rather than, like you said, looking for all of these negatives or red flags. You're looking for things to say yes to. Now, has your relationship style changed at all since your diagnosis? Yes and no. I mean, I think that because of my history of being in poly relationships, being in, in the, the kink world, being diagnosed with herpes, I've learned to communicate a lot better for sure and to have open and honest conversations and helping partners get to that same point and talking about just, you know, feelings and things that are happening. So I think in that way, my style has changed. But overall, I mean, initially, right, like initially I I stopped dating. Um, For how long? How long did you shut down dating? Oh, it was months. It was months, probably five to six months. Mm-hmm. I turned off my, my online dating profiles. There were a few partners that I had at the time of my diagnosis who were super supportive, and I, you know, I was able to keep seeing them. And then there were others who completely shut me out, which is fine. Yeah. And I had disclosed to a few of the poly folks in my life who didn't want to hear about it like they weren't having their own conversations around STDs and so when I inserted that conversation into those relationships it was kind of like hands off and so I think at that point I was just like I just I need to shut down I need to kind of take care of myself and not worry about everybody else right now and then I had that one experience with the uh, leg with the leg, yeah, out at dinner, asking me if he could get herpes because our legs were touching, and it was like, okay, I'm just gonna kind of take control of this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna own it and fumble my way through disclosing until I, I get it right. And I think that for a lot of us, it just takes for us to get tired. We just yes. get tired of it. We get tired of the stigma. We get tired of putting all this additional pressure on ourselves, and we just break free we break ourselves free and we're just like you know what i'm over this i'm gonna take charge of my sexuality because sex is awesome being able to sexually express yourself and have these kinds of exchanges with other people like we desire pleasure we want pleasure we want human connection and so oftentimes we put a lot more pressure on ourselves as people who are living with the positive status than the people who we choose to open up and disclose mm-hmm. to would even put on us. I can't tell you how many people who, after disclosing, have been like, oh, I have herpes too. Yes. I can't tell you how many people are aware and have dated someone mm-hmm. in the past with it, how many people don't care. And for those people who have their objections toward it, please don't look at that as a rejection of your character. They're declining your offer. So when you're able to allow yourself to look at it like, okay, here's an offer I'm extending to you, and the other person's looking at the offer, and they're just like, no thanks, you have to take it for what it is. The way I see it, our person, our people, who are meant to be in our lives in this space of sexual contact, these are people who are either going to also have herpes or be okay with the fact that we have herpes. So that's two-thirds of the possible outcomes <laughs> of people that you may interact with, that you may want to pursue a romantic sexual relationship with. And when you go into it with that mindset, like your odds of having progressed a relationship to that point 
are 66.6%. <laughs> so when you look at it that way, we winning out here. And the only way that we're losing is if we allow for ourselves to allow that one third to completely overshadow the other two thirds of possibility. So take that into consideration. If you're someone who's struggling with your diagnosis to get back in the dating world, you know, make that checklist of things that have to happen in order for you to move forward. And when you have so many, sometimes that takes more experiences with the person, more interactions with the person for you to be able to fill that checklist, but it's worth it. So I don't know, Amanda, like we covered everything I wanted to cover. Is there anything that you feel like we may have missed out on or that you want to add to the conversation? Uh, you just mentioned about like declining an offer, right? I, one thing that I always tell folks is that, right, like that declining of an offer isn't a reflection on you. Exactly. It's not a reflection of who you are as a person, your character, anything like that. It's like you just said, that person declining an offer is their choice, and the fact that you're giving them that choice is important. But just remember that what the outcome is isn't a reflection of who you are as a person. Exactly. All right. How can people get in touch with you? Sure. I mean, Do you want people to get in touch with you? Absolutely. Let me ask that. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I always offer up my email, which is adenison at ncsddc.org. Um, people can feel free to call my office phone, 202-969-0988. If you're driving, please don't stop yeah, and write this don't. down. I will put it in the show notes uh, for different ways that you can get in contact with Amanda. But I'm always happy to talk to people. I get um, notes and calls every single week, and I think the more that we have these conversations, uh, the better, the more that we as people living with or affected by STIs can have these conversations, uh, the more that will change it kind of in the, the general population, so. Absolutely. All right, that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People with Amanda Dennison. Are you a director? What's your title? Director of Programs and Partnerships. At National Coalition of STD Directors. I'll link to our contact information in the show notes. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. You can comment on this episode, and um, I'll get back to you, and we'll get any questions that you may have for Amanda. We'll get those to her. So, again, we're live at STD Engage 2019. I want to remind everyone that Waxo is a sponsor of the Something Positive for Positive People podcast. You can go on there, waxoh.com, and check out some of the articles on there. We're on the topic of healthcare for queer identifying folks uh, looking for a way to identify compassionate, empathetic care from medical professionals. And that's why I'm so happy to be able to represent the hashtag we need a button campaign if you're curious about that want to check that out there's more information on waxo.com till next time stay sex positive